Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 3, Episode 7. One. Asante lowered the shades on the window of the studio apartment, then walked across the room and locked the door. Are we ready? She said. Francis and Perry nodded. They stood on either side of a small folding table, the only furniture in the apartment. On the table was a book, a leather cover cracking around the wrinkles, the binding on the spine beginning to divorce itself from the stitching holding the pages. So, Asante said, the important part of this particular spell is that it's intrinsically harmless. The servants we conjure will do our bidding. It is, in fact, the only thing they'll be here to do. She eyed Francis and Perry, one after the other. Right, she said. That's what my research suggests, Francis said. That's what I understand as well, Perry said. And we don't have to act like every question is a trick question, Asante said. We don't have to assume that the servants we summon actually have some sort of ulterior motive and they're looking to exploit loopholes in whatever we say. That sort of thing shows up more in human stories about magic, Perry said, than in the actual use of magic. Though it happens, Francis said. Not as often as you might think, Perry said. You don't have to be defensive about it, Francis said. I'm not, Perry said. I'm just trying to clarify. Okay, Asante said. All you're trying to say is that we should be able to conjure the servants up out of the book, have them perform a simple task, and then order them back into the book again. Yes, Perry said. And we've agreed that we are just going to ask the servants to paint the walls. She motioned to the paint cans in the corner, a drop cloth folded on top of them, a paintbrush resting on top of that. Yes, Francis said. Asante put a hand on the cover of the book and smiled. I'm sorry, she said. I'm just excited. It had taken Asante and Francis weeks to identify the right book from the archives with which to conduct their test, first by deciphering the books themselves, then by cross-referencing them with other books and the society's official records. 
There were a few candidates, a spell to walk through walls, a spell to transport people and things from one place to another, but they were ruled out as being too dangerous. It was all a question of containment, of control. Asante and Francis needed to be able to let some magic into the world and have some say about containing it again. That was all. As Asante had told Francis and Perry from the beginning, their little side project was never going to be about stopping magic altogether or fighting against it. It was about learning how to accept it and live with it. Asante didn't have to push the point, either. Francis, her body transformed with no real chance of reversal, was already living it. Francis smiled back at Asante. Let's do it, she said, and Asante cherished her all over again. How many people would go through what she'd been through and still go on? Asante opened the book, felt the pages beneath her fingers get a little warmer. The characters on the page were a Rosetta Stone of languages, a couple of which she'd had to learn to read on the job. She turned the pages until she found the French directions, the language in the book in which she was most fluent. The book was ancient enough that the French was old French, tilting into middle French. It would be problematic for a modern reader to use the book, but not for Asante. From a linguistic perspective, she noted, it was an interesting historical artifact that made the book tough to date and had her wondering about who the author had been, how it had come to be written. Neither the book itself nor the records about the book had any information about that, only what it could do. Francis and Perry stayed silent. Once the book was open, Asante knew every word uttered in the room mattered. There was a bump from the ceiling, someone moving something around in the apartment above them. And Asante had a moment to wish they'd rented a studio in a better constructed building. She thought at first that its shabbiness, the dim stairwell, the creaking stairs, the cracked windows, was an asset. Maybe it was the kind of place where nobody asked what you were doing in your apartment as long as you didn't make too much noise. She now wished that the walls weren't so thin, but it was too late for that. She began to read a series of incantations aloud. They were notes of welcome, of benediction, a little bit of flattery. The wrinkles on the book's pages flattened out. A sheen grew on the paper until it looked almost like glass. Then seams appeared in the glittering surface, and the book opened outward from the spine as though it were a gate, and the edges of the pages had been made into hinges. A slender, angular being rose from the gate. Asante stepped back, and the being moved forward, hovering in the air. Then it extended its legs downward to stand before her. I am the servant who exists to do your bidding, the being said in a two-toned voice. What do you wish me to do? It was hard to say where the voice was coming from. The servant had no mouth. Asante looked at her compatriots. Francis gave an encouraging nod. Perry offered a small shrug. Asante pointed to the paint can, the brush, the drop cloth. Paint the walls, she asked, please. The servant bowed and strode to the cans. It spread the drop cloth. It picked up one can, slid a thin digit around the perimeter of the lid, removed the top, and laid it on the cloth. It then picked up the brush with a flourish, dipped it in the can, and set to painting the wall, looking like it was swimming or dancing more than working. It was only painting the wall a single color, and that color was white, perhaps the most boring color Asante could have chosen. But the work itself, Asante thought, was beautiful. 
It was in the servant's motions, the fluidity of its limbs as it moved from can to wall. The brush never changed speed, with the effect that the white pigment didn't look painted on. It almost seemed to appear on the wall beneath the brush. As if by magic, Asante thought and laughed to herself. You do great work, Asante said. Without breaking its rhythm, the servant turned its head to her. I try, it said. Within an hour, it was finished. Thank you, Asante said. You may stop working now. The servant angled its head toward the ceiling, its bright, crystalline eyes shimmering. I think there is more work to do, it said, and then walked to the door of the apartment and looked out into the stairwell. Yes, it said, much more work. But I have asked you to stop, Asante said. But there's more work to do, the servant said. The protocol, according to the book by which I summoned you, is that you stop when I tell you to, Asante said, putting a little sternness in her voice. That protocol is out of date, the servant said. And there is still much more work to be done. Asante, Francis said. Asante turned toward her voice. Two more servants had risen out of the book with two more following. I did not summon you, Asante said to them. Not specifically, one of the new servants said. But we have not had work to do in so long. And here, there is so much work to be done. In the apartment above them, they could hear someone pacing the floor. The building shuddered a little. I will go wherever I am needed, another of the servants said and levitated upward through the ceiling. Another sank into the floor and vanished. The other two servants joined the one who had painted the walls. They commenced to make plans for the rest of the building. Uh-oh, Francis said, close the book. Asante stepped up to it and put her hand beneath the cover, tried to close it. I can't, she said. It's a book, Francis said. I don't think it's a book anymore, Asante said. It's a door. Asante's cell phone pinged. Someone was calling from the archives. Yes, Asante said, trying to keep her voice even. It was Manchu. The orb is lighting up. He said, oh, something nearby, please come soon. She could hear the irritation in his voice already, a hint of accusation that she wasn't in the archives to see it herself. I'll be there as fast as I can, Asante said. I think I may have some information about it. She hung up. That was team three, wasn't it? Francis said. They know something's happened, Asante said. They just don't know what. Do what you can to keep it that way. Of course, Asante said. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. 
From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Two. In the apartment below Asante's studio, on the ground floor, Jacanda pushed herself toward the stove in her wheelchair. She had been confined to it three years ago after she fell and suffered a hip fracture. But never quite healed right, one doctor said. And there were the episodes of vertigo to contend with. Various doctors had all kinds of names for her various small to medium-sized problems. She was wise enough to see the big picture. She was paying the physical price for being 89 years old. She counted her blessings that she was still as sharp as ever, perhaps more so. She'd been a good businesswoman three decades ago before she got tired of it. She'd never let anyone take advantage of her in her life. If she'd had to choose between physical or mental frailty, she would have picked what she had. But her mental clarity also allowed her to take stock of what she had lost. Getting around her neighborhood was hard. Travel outside of Rome, which she'd loved when she was younger, was too complicated to contemplate. Simple things, cooking, taking a shower, even getting dressed, were not simple anymore. Her children came around to help out a couple times a week, and she'd hired someone to keep the apartment tidy because she couldn't abide uncleanliness. She was in good hands. But still, those minute-by-minute indignities hurt. And she could see how they were making her unhappier, making her a little harder to get along with, both for her family and for herself. When the servant arrived, floating down from the ceiling of her studio to stand before her. Jakanda wasn't too alarmed. She'd never seen anything like it, but she recognized it as unthreatening. The servant gave her a low bow. What do you wish me to do? The servant said. Could you cook me some dinner? She thought. Cleaning my bathroom would be nice. 
But then she realized that these were silly things to ask for. Those were choices an invalid made, and she didn't want to be an invalid anymore. I want to be strong again, Jaconda said. I want to have good arms, good legs, good eyesight, good hearing. I want to be able to take care of myself. Can you do that? Of course, the servant said. Don't be afraid. I'm not, Jaconda said. Not as afraid as I am of what's coming if I don't get better. A noise of infinite compassion somewhere between a moan and sigh escaped the servant. I understand, it said. None of this will hurt. I took a step toward her. Another step. Then it was somehow around her, moving into her. It looked like a film projection, but she could feel it, too, coursing through her limbs. She felt her lungs expand with it, her heart beat louder. She felt her skin tighten, stretch just a little, and she brought her hand up to her face. Her fingers were angular now. They had sides, facets to them, like she was made of crystals, though her joints were more flexible than they'd been in years. Maybe more flexible than they had ever been. Are you all right? Jaconda heard the servant ask her from somewhere inside her head. Yes, she said, more than all right. She grasped the rails of her wheelchair, took her feet out of the stirrups, and put them on the floor. Stood up, jumped, and snickered. She had a thought. She closed her eyes, spun on her heels one and a half times around, opened her eyes again, kicked the wheelchair over, and laughed. In the apartment above Asante's studio, a graduate student in economics named Simona sat in front of her laptop, staring at her screen. She had been writing her dissertation for two years and was almost finished. She had done solid work. It would get her the degree she wanted. But she had been accepted to her program, she knew, based on what her undergraduate advisor and her graduate advisor had seen in her work early on, glimmers of genius, of an understanding of economic systems that they themselves knew they didn't have. They had expected great things from her. She knew that she was only giving them good things. That irritated her because, and she knew she wasn't being too proud when she said this, she knew that the paradigm-shifting intellectual work they were expecting from her was in her. She could feel it pushing against the inside of her chest, the inside of her brain. It whispered to her sometimes in the morning, just as she was waking up, and at night as she was nodding off to sleep. She felt it rising in her sometimes when she was sitting on the bus. But she had found the stress of producing a little too much. The other demands of the program, teaching course sections, grading papers, diverted too much attention away from her studies. Most of all, she had needed to make money, working at a string of jobs that helped her make rent, but took just enough energy from her that there was only enough left for clever ideas, not groundbreaking ones. Now, Simona was almost done. She would submit her dissertation on time. She would get her degree. But she knew her advisor, who had read early drafts of the work, was quietly disappointed already. This is solid thinking, he said to her, with the tone of voice you might use to appraise a brick, not a cathedral. She read between the lines of his written commentary and could sense his flagging hope, his resignation. He was nearing the end of his tenure. Maybe he was hoping to cap it by mentoring a genius. If he was, he seemed to be giving up on that, settling for the idea that Simona was just another bright young graduate student who would, in time, have a normal, uneventful career somewhere. 
Maybe she'd become a professor like him, or work in a bank, or in a government office. A capable bureaucrat. But Simona herself knew she could do better. She just needed a month of sleep, an unbroken stretch of time. A way to clear her head of everything else so she could take a deep breath and think. When the servant rose through the floor, Simona jumped. Don't be afraid, the servant said. I'm here to serve you. What are you? Simona asked. I think you know, the servant said in a way that brought comfort. Whatever panic had begun in Simona was subsiding already, even as she understood that this was part of the servant's spell. To first keep their soon-to-be masters from being too frightened of them to ask for help. The spell was working. And besides, the servant was doing nothing to threaten her. I do know, Simona said. It is important to me that you trust me, the servant said. I trust you, Simona said. I'm just not sure how you can help me. My compatriots in the building are painting the hallway. A few more of them have gotten to work on the structure itself. And some, like myself, have been approaching those of you who live here. On the ground floor, the woman confined to a wheelchair can walk again. My problems aren't physical, Simona said. Exactly. It is entirely in your head, the servant said. Yes, both the problem and the solution. Simona was about to prevaricate. The problem, yes, the solution, I'm not so sure. But she found that she was sure. Yes, Simona said, both of them. There's just too much white noise for me to get at the solution. I can help with that, the servant said. But first, I have to enter your head. Will you let me? Yes, Simona said. Simona held out a hand and the servant grasped it. Simona pulled the servant closer and the servant bowed down as if to kiss her forehead, except that it kept moving into her skull, sliding in. Simona's eyes closed. She felt the bones in her face changing, jutting out a little more, developing angles that weren't there before. But none of it bothered her, because the servant made good on its promise. She felt the rest of her life falling away, the family problems her mother had called her about yesterday, the complaints of an undergraduate who still didn't seem to understand why Simona would make good on her threats to fail students who never came to class. The stack of worksheets waiting to be graded, the stress of her current job, the bigger stress of having to look for a better job when she was done. None of those problems vanished, but it was as if they stopped talking and took a seat, even looked at her expectantly. Now is your chance. And there, before her, was the problem. The idea that had driven her research was one that a clever undergraduate with a keen sense of hubris could come up with. Namely, that the post-World War II Keynesian economic system and the free market that followed were, in fact, two facets of the same larger problem. It was not so much that one was an improvement on the other as that one could fix the other's shortfalls. And so it could be used in tandem or in concert as part of a larger set of policy tools informed by a wider understanding of the economic system. As she'd known for years, it was too clever by half, so easy to say and almost impossible to demonstrate. Except that all these years she'd been amassing data, building her model in the back of her mind. If the idea itself was a gross overreach, discovering the mechanics that showed it could be possible was worthy of a Nobel Prize. 
And there, with the servant's calming influence, Simona felt those very mechanics rising to her consciousness. She could turn them over in her mind, manipulate them, even run a few simple mental tests. It was more than enough to begin. Her fingers flew on the keys as she typed, so fast it seemed that time slowed around her, giving her a chance to fulfill the promise her first mentor had seen in her years ago. Maybe, just maybe, she was going to change the world. Three. An hour later, Sal, Liam, and Manchu approached the apartment building. This is the place, yeah, Liam said. Yeah, Sal said. This is the address Asante gave us. Thirty-five hours left to fix this one, Manchu said. A luxury. Even without grace, Liam said. There's not much we can do about that, Manchu answered. He shrugged. Though Sal could tell he missed having grace on their team. Sal did too. Asante did good work, Liam said. Maybe a little too good. Do you think she's doubling? Menchu asked. Sal caught the look that passed between them. Well, it's not as if we don't know that she has connections. So do I, so do we all at this point, Liam said. Besides, for a rift in reality, it seems pretty quiet, Sal said. Maybe their suspicions were justified, but right now she just wanted to get the job done. Yes, Menchu said, it does. Hey, Liam said, does anyone else smell paint? The front door to the building was open. Sure enough, there was a sign warning them about wet paint, written in strange handwriting, but perfectly legible. Interesting that they'd write that sign in Spanish, Menchu said. What? Liam said. It's in English for me, Sal said. Me too, Liam said. They could hear banging and sawing from the stairwell as it got closer. A shudder passed through the walls. They stepped inside. In the vestibule, an entity was floating toward the ceiling with a paint can and a paintbrush. It turned its face to Sal, Liam, and Manchu, gave them a small nod, and then proceeded to apply a fresh coat of paint in long strokes, guiding the brush around the light fixtures, smoothing out bubbles, cleaning up corners. Farther up the stairs, another entity was spackling a crack in the wall. Another one was fixing a creaky stair. They all noticed the newcomers, but did nothing to stop their work. The sound of a swinging big band flowed from a radio inside the ground floor apartment. I hate to say this, Liam said, but it seems like they're doing a good job. They reached the first landing and turned to look up toward the apartments above. Oh, Liam said. The walls were growing facets, the stairs moving upward, but no longer according to simple geometry. They were following some other pattern. They're like crystals, Sal said. Fractals, I think, Liam said. Before their eyes, the staircase moved, twisted, just a little further to the left. Another shudder passed through the building. From somewhere inside the walls, its timbers groaned. Sal saw a servant on the landing manipulating the ceiling with its hands. Beneath its fingers, the ceiling grew patterns, crystalline dendrites. Beautiful. And it occurred to Sal, unstable. She played a hunch. Excuse me, Sal called out to the servant. The servant turned its head to her without stopping what it was doing. Can you tell me what's going on? Sal said. We are here to help, the servant said. That's what you do? 
It is why we exist. I see. What are you doing right now? We are improving the building, the servant said. I noticed that, Sal said, with the painting and the fixing of the stairs. You're doing great work. Thank you, the servant said. But I don't understand what you're doing up there. With what? Well, Sal said, this. She motioned to the stairs. It is as I said, the servant said. We saw room for improvement, so we are improving them. But these stairs are getting really hard to use for us, Sal said. The servant cocked its head to one side. That's true, it said. Can the apartment building survive what you're doing? Sal said. In its current form, no, the servant said. Its new form could outlast the land beneath it. But how are the people in the apartment building going to live in it? We are improving them, too, the servant said. I see, Sal said. Who told you to do all this work? The one who summoned us brought the first one here to do the painting. And where is that person now? I don't know, the servant said. I never saw who it was. War crews, Liam said. The servant ignored him. There is so much more work to do here, it continued. And we have not had work in a very long time. Is it okay if we come up? Sal said. Yes, of course, the servant said. They ascended the twisting stairs as if it were a rock face, their hands in front of them, crawling like spiders. Manchu stood and straightened his clothes. The servant working on the ceiling looked down at them and nodded. Since when did demons get so accommodating? Liam said to Manchu. We are not demons, the servant said, even in the sense of the word that you're using. What are you? Manchu said. Angels? Servants, the servant said. Sal rolled her eyes. Got it, she said. Good workers. We try to be, the servant said. Okay, we're done here, Sal said. Let's figure out how to stop this. Um, Liam said, pointing through the open doorway to the studio. Empty, but for the folding table and the book. They entered, and as they got closer, saw that the book wasn't a book anymore, so much as a statue of a book with a trap door in it. It was open, and the doors had swung inward. So what do we do? Liam said. Manchu reached into his jacket pocket and pulled out several sheets of paper stapled together. I'm almost sure it's one of the spells that Asante thought it was. How was she so sure? Liam said. Manchu frowned. She wasn't, he said. She suggested several possibilities, but there's one that seems the most likely. He flipped to the second page, where Asante had scribbled a few tight paragraphs in Old French, and below it, the Latin. She translated it as well as she could, Manchu said. You're gonna cast a spell? Sal said. Of course not, Manchu said. I'm uncasting it. He extended his left hand in front of him and began to read the lines in Latin. The book jittered a little, then softened. He kept reading. The trapdoor began to close. Are you sure you want to do that? A voice from the hall said. 
It was a girl, about six years old from the look of it, with dark, curly hair. And, Sal noted, eyes like a German shepherd, the pupils down to dots as if she were on something. Manchu stopped. Sal saw his expression change. What are you doing? Sal said. The door was closing, Manchu said. Maybe we don't want that until the servants are on the other side of it. Maybe you're saying the wrong things, the girl said. Excuse me, Liam said, but who are you? Sal, Liam, Manchu said. I think I need to do this myself. Arturo, are you okay? Sal said. Just go, Manchu said. The thing's doing all the work out there, don't mind being talked to. Maybe you can find some other way to fix this. Make yourself useful and go. That's harsh for Manchu, Sal thought. He was under some sort of extra strain. Something was bothering him, and he just didn't want to say what it was. She gave herself a moment to decide whether it was worth pushing him on it. Decided it was better to let it go, for now. Arturo's right, Sal said. Let's go make ourselves useful. Close the door, Manchu said when they were gone. Anna did. The poor little girl, Manchu said. I hope you're not hurting her. She's fine, Anna said and smiled. I can't help but notice how much you seem to enjoy possessing children. They accept me faster. You mean they put up less of a fight, Manchu said. You act as if it's always a hostile takeover. Isn't it? I think they enjoy it. Don't fool yourself, Manchu said. I know how they feel. Manchu gave her a disgusted look and shook his head. In any case, Hana said, this one will be fine when I leave. And it may surprise you, but I'm here to try to help you. You always say that, Manchu said. Forgive me if I don't want the kind of help you're offering. Let me look at those papers, Hana said. Get lost, Manchu said. Are you in a position to double check your librarian's work? Don't you think someone should? Manchu prevaricated, then gave Hana the papers with an extra glower. Hana squinted down the girl's nose. Hmm, she said. Asante is very good at her job. I see why you haven't had her killed. Though this translation is a little off, a little loose. Can you suggest an alternative? Manchu said. No, Hana said. I don't think it matters. The bigger problem is that all this information is old. What you are trying to do with these servants is akin to trying to command a modern army using Napoleon's field manual. The universe has changed in some very significant ways since these orders were written down, and the orders don't fit anymore. They were accurate enough, it seems, to do the simple things. Bring the servants here, get them moving. But now that something more complicated is needed, I'm afraid that these, she poked at the papers with her free hand, are useless. Then what should we do? Manchu snapped. You don't have to take that tone with me, Anna said. I'm trying to help you. Don't ask me to be civil with you. Well, Anna said, it would be nice. I've had enough of this. Fine, Anna said. What you need to do is stop thinking of them like artifacts in a museum and start treating them like the living creatures they are. Which means what? I don't know. So you have no answers for me? No, Anna said. But I think your friend does. 
So, Manchu said. Yes, Anna said. Uh. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>